Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As I slow down my speech to introduce the intrepid crew of the Unreasonable Podcast, starring Michael Five Hundred. Not Michael. <laughs> what the fuck is going on today? Vishal. We, okay, this is the. We're going to keep this cut. Vishal for Five Hundred Global, uh, and of course, angel and deep tech investor extraordinaire Michael, Michael Blakey. Blakey from Cocoon Capital. Guys, I haven't seen you for so long. What have you guys been up to since Formula One? Well, in the last five minutes, I've just been recovering from. The last five takes you've had to take to record this I'm introduction. Rusty. It's the I'm simplest rusty. thing. It's like, good evening. Here we are. We're back. But I'm no. rusty. We haven't seen each other since Formula One. I know. It's been a long time. It's been yeah. a long time. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm finally over the Formula One hangover. That was like two <laughs> weeks of craziness, right? That started with Super Returns and the ABCJ conference and various family office events and sorry not the ABCJ the Deal Street Asia Super Milken Milken, everything right and so many other things happening at the same time the Bloomberg events Forbes CEO conferences and that's before the F1 itself (laughs) actually started so for the benefit of our listeners what Vishal is talking about is what I now I used to call the crazy week to now what's this like what the crazy fortnight right the two weeks before Formula 1 at the end of October where essentially Singapore just lit up like a Christmas tree so how was it for you Michael did you actually go and attend any of these events at the Formula 1 I attended a couple right at the beginning but I had to deal with a uh post-COVID situation. Oh, yeah. So as, as listeners will remember, my partner and my uh, youngest have been stuck in the UK oh, yeah. since uh, beginning of COVID. So I thought I'd take it a perfect opportunity, couldn't have timed it better if I, if I had tried, to actually head over to the UK and bring them back. So it was an entertaining time for me, but I've, n- I've now gone from living a life of a bachelor to uh, living in a house with four women, a dog, and a hamster, which I wasn't quite. But what's even worse, I've just ended up with a pink car. A pink car? A pink car. Mm. You love it. Pink was the color that you wanted. The only thing I've noticed is that when I'm driving down the street, Everybody seems to give way to me. <laughs> is, it, is, it a, is it a pink Lamborghini? Is that why? No, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a pink Renault. So I, don't, I think there's assumptions being made. Yeah. This guy's dangerous. But just, just going back to the whole Formula One and all the events going on. I mean, where do you think that place is Singapore? And I guess Southeast Asia on the more global scale here. Yeah, so there's always a lot of press and, you know, if you've been reading the newspapers, you'll hear that people say, oh my goodness, look at Singapore. And there's always been a friendly rivalry, I'd say, with Hong Kong. Mm. And look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong's not doing well and so on and so forth. Mm. Someone even went as far as to say that Hong Kong opened up because they saw what happened to Singapore and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, first of all, it's like the best time for Singapore, but it's, I don't think it's sustainable. Right, I think we're going to revert back. It's a bit overdone. The rents are up like 70, 80 percent. I know. My and uh, everyone's talking about moving here and, ev- and a lot of people have moved here. But in the next two quarters, we've just had, you know, the Chinese decide to consolidate and go through that political process they just went through. I'd be very surprised if we don't see China starting to open up. Hong Kong already is starting to open is, is up. That, is that what the wisest people that you know have the told you and shared with you? The wisest people have told Are we going to be revisiting this yes. in a year to so come and just say, wow, here. Yeah. So what do you think, right? Because you're like <laughs> the wisest person I know as well. 
But I think it's overdone. I don't want to be in that category. I, I know I, what, what happened the last time you quoted I, wise I, people. You I know. think I think we're going to revert back to the mean. So a lot of people are really worried about you know the, this sort of uh, rent inflation. But I think give it two quarters and it'll be quite yeah, good. I hope so. Like, right now, been, obviously, it's there's it's, been it looks massive good. turnover in my own condo. Like basically, more than half of the residents have changed because of how drastic. Have you noticed the cars getting better? My, in my condo. <laughs> like yeah, new people it's, come in, it's they have insane. like better cars. Yeah, I, I think they could get better no, cars. Seriously. I was already impressed by the cars yeah, that were there no, in the no, first place. There's a Dino. There's like a Ferrari Dino. In my God, yeah, there's car. a Dino and so next to his amazing. G63. That's hilarious! Wow, so that's so crazy. That's what's happening. But I think it's gonna. It's, I hope it's it does. Re- I hope it does revert to the mean. But I also think that one of the main takeaways from whatever happened during the F1 weeks is that. For a lot of people visiting Singapore during that time, they saw Singapore at its best and biggest, and yeah. hopefully, it puts Singapore on the map of global events on a yearly basis, right? Like, so with, with super returns coming down. With, I mean, we were speaking with someone earlier today who said, from a private equity fundraising LP perspective, for venture and PE, at least for private markets, it just appeared like a bonanza during that time. Not that it was people were successfully fundraising, but more that the number and volume of people who came down to Singapore, the concentration in just a week was yeah. astounding. I was doing two cocktails a night, minimum, sometimes oh even three times. Yeah. Okay, so if, if that's all happening, I guess we can then bring in, obviously, if we add this to the, the Temasek, Google, yeah. and Bain report that has just come out, it's got some really interesting facts. Well, the annual, what they call the CE economy report has uh, finally dropped. And uh, mm. this is done every year since 2016 by Temasek and also Bain and by Google. <laughs> During the launch, I spoke at the event talking from a VC perspective about the CE economy very report. Very eloquently, I might say. Thank yes, you. Very very thank, you. thank you, boys. I had, uh, I had the both of them for emotional support over there as well. It was, it was really quite, quite phenomenal, including, I mean, Felicia was there too. It was a fantastically done event, but... I think that there were so many insights from that report that I didn't fully appreciate. And I don't know about the two of you, but some facts surprised me. Well, I've co- I'll go through some of the Why facts don't you that do I've done that, and then you can yes. have a look at that. Yes, right? let's do that. So it started in 2016, so we've tracked it for eight years. And in 2016, the first report said that Southeast Asia was going to become a 200 billion, call it GTV, uh, opportunity. And... We reached that in 2022. What's so, GTV? Gross transactional value. So all the different services, if you bought an e-commerce, uh, mm-hmm. uh, if you purchased, uh, you did a digital loan yeah. or you did any of that kind of stuff. In 2016... The amount of internet transactions the, taking in, place, the internet economy transactions. $200 billion with internet transactions was going to happen. And they said by that 2022. in 2022. Well, no, they actually said it by 2025. 2025, okay. But uh, in the report, they said we achieved it in 2022. Astounding. So we achieved it three years earlier. Astounding. Do you think that was due to COVID? Mm. Actually, I don't know. It's a good question. Possibly, yeah. So he's lighter, concise, They didn't say that in the report. But yeah, no, it's actually quite interesting. Anyway, the digital economy created 160,000 skilled jobs, 30 million jobs created indirectly. And they think we're going to get to 300 billion in 2025 and to get to 1 trillion by 2030, which is essentially like the current GDP of Indonesia. Now, do you think that's reasonable or unreasonable? Mm. Did you actually expect that to actually happen, Michael, when you first arrived? I expected it to grow, but I actually thought it would take longer. So I'm surprised by, when I, when I first got here, I was like, okay, it's gonna take a while to catch up, but I, I'm now looking at what's going on and I compare it to what I'm seeing in Europe. 
And I can actually easily see that by 2030, in, in some areas, we can actually surpass what's happening in Europe. I don't think we'll catch up with like the US. I don't think we'll catch up with China. But I think more and more people are beginning to see the opportunity here and are actually coming here. If you look at you know what's happened in the last week, which is FinTech week. Yeah. There's been a number of, of the companies like Weaver and such like who've now set up offices in Singapore from the UK. When I first came here, nobody, everybody was like, why are you coming yeah. to Singapore? Yeah. Why yeah. Southeast mm-hmm. Asia? Now you're getting some of the hottest companies out of the UK actually saying the first stop we're actually going to do is not mm-hmm. the US, it's actually Southeast yeah. Asia. I'll share, I'll share a couple of perspectives on this point. So, and I think, we have some insights from this because we invest just across the globe in various markets around the world. And one of the things that I've noticed at least is that the lag time between ecosystems to catch up actually decreases over time. So the amount of time it takes China to catch up to the US is going to be more than the amount of time it took India to catch up to China. It's going to be more than the time Southeast Asia takes to catch up India. to India mm-hmm. and then Latin America to Southeast Asia and Middle East to Latin America. So the lag time is shorter and shorter and shorter. And I think you underestimate that when you're modeling, like how quickly that happens. So I think that's one facet. And the second is that I think the rate of adoption tends to be on an exponential scale or a logarithmic scale and not on a linear scale, right? In, in terms of the adoption of smartphones, adoption of e-commerce or online purchasing. And it's a habit that doesn't really regress. It usually compounds over time. So I think when you're modeling reports and you're modeling growth, they tend to model it linearly when really they should be modeling it logarithmically, which is why targets are being hit a lot faster. So when you say a trillion dollars by 2030, I think it's completely reasonable. And who knows, we might even beat that entire figure well ahead of that. Yeah. So before the pandemic happened, the Google report said there was 360 million internet users. And after the pandemic, we have 100 million more. Now we have 460 million. So I don't know whether that's acceleration, but that is... I would call that acceleration. Because there's only 600 million here, actual population. So the penetration is getting pretty uh, pretty deep, you know. I I think it's kind of obvious because I think also in the report, I can't remember the exact number, you know, it's the penetration that is accelerating out in kind of suburbia in tier, like if you look at Indonesia, it's tier two, tier three cities. I think that if it hadn't been for COVID, probably would have taken longer. But I think the infrastructure is having to come in faster to actually support because people couldn't get out. So this was a very interesting page I saw in the Google report about exactly the point, which is e-commerce. So they had, actually Google managed to figure it out, despite the fact that they didn't use any internal data, right? As the report says, where if you looked at the urban and suburban user in Mm. e-commerce, you had urban users doing anywhere between 52 to 72% of that population of that cohort uh, using e-commerce and suburban already about 39, 40%. But when it came to groceries, right? Like, you know, actually going and buying uh, groceries online, suburban was like 4%. This is unbelievable. And that, that struck out to me because I always felt worried about the social commerce model in Indonesia because originally, when, if you try to copy the Ping Door Door model, which was to deliver watermelons and sort of like groceries at first, that never took off in Indonesia. And we saw a couple of companies like Chili Belly try that, then pivot to FMCG and then find that the margins didn't work and then finally got sold off, right? Mm-hmm. And it's precisely that page in the Google report that says, look, if you're trying to get a battery charger from China, right? Yeah, and you're in a third tier city, you'd, you'd use it. The e-commerce if infrastructure was a distribution mechanism, but if you're going to buy vegetables, you just 
walk down to the market. And I think that was one of the most amazing um, pieces of insight that they actually found and actually be, was able to communicate in that report. The other thing that I saw in another page is that the, the deals were actually changing. FinTech for the first time overtook e-commerce as total invested capital and lo logistics deals, and this is in the report, was diminishing. Vishal, did you guys invest in any logistics companies, especially in Indonesia, because it seems to be diminishing. We definitely have some logistics companies in Indonesia, so I can understand how it is going down as a total percentage of investable capital as fintech gets larger and larger. And you've got to also think about it from the perspective of maturity of companies, right? Yeah. So fintech companies that would have been backed in 2016, 2017 are now reaching a size and a scale where they can absorb capital in hundreds of millions of dollars. So from a capital deployment perspective, a lot more money is going to go into the later stage so opportunities. The pie is just getting bigger. So the pie is get, just getting okay. bigger. And I think that also explains e-commerce, right? Which is that the Indonesian e-commerce companies or e-commerce in Southeast Asia would have hit maturity in 2010 to 2015, where you have like your Bukalapaks, your Tokopedias, your Lazadas, all of those companies being born. So money into e-commerce decreases because the companies are already well capitalized. Oh, they've gone public already. And they've gone public yeah. already and they're not raising. So it moves into new categories yeah. of companies that aren't public, right? Like fintech. And yeah. then after fintech, it'll move into logistics or whatever's coming next. Well, what happened was they had a record year in IPOs in 2021, 13 billion came to market. And this year in the first half, 1 billion, which is surprising because I don't even know which that one, where that 1 billion was from. Incredible. Who ipo in like a... Uh, in the first half of 2022? We had two companies okay. that IPO'd. So one was Prenetics. Oh, but that wasn't here yeah, though. Yeah, that's in South East yeah, 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 So they didn't true. disclose that, but I just thought mm. like, I, th I thought that number would be zero. It was like one Actually, billion. What, the what only, did, one, I, the what only one I can think of which wasn't here was Property Guru. Oh, oh, oh maybe oh, that's yeah. it. That's Property Guru. And the other one was GoTo. No, GoTo did it last year. Property oh. Guru was the beginning of this year though. Yeah. Anyway, it's 13 billion of IPO last year, 1 billion. But as the report says, we still have a lot of dry powders. VC has 15 billion worth of capital. Can you imagine? I, I think it's very Incredible. interesting, right? That Actually, that, that surprised me. So, yeah. you know, we had done in our own internal assessment last year of how much dry powder there was available in the Southeast Asian ecosystem. What was the number? And we were shocked when we saw the number sort of land somewhere at 8 billion. And we were very, very surprised. We thought it was... Did you think that you missed it? You, you, we thought it was, it was a lot higher than what we thought it was. Yeah. We thought it'd be something like 2 billion yeah. or 3. It ended up at 8. And now when Google, Bain and Tomasic published a report this year, and they pitched a number at $15 billion of dry powder, I think that's fantastic news for all of us because what it really means is that the ecosystem is very, very well capitalized. The question is, is deployment happening at the same pace and rate that it was happening at the past? Probably not, but the advantage of having bumper years like 2020 and 2021 when people were raising on a frenzy is that there's plenty of capital sitting in the coffers of VCPE growth equity funds ready to be deployed into tech. Well, I think that it will be natural that, and we've discussed this in previous episodes, right? It'd be natural that I think people are going to hold on to the cash uh, as we ride out through this yeah. environment. But I do think the Fed's going to kind of calm down in the next two quarters and then yeah. people are going to spend the yeah. money. So, but here, the, always the issue, there's only so long they can actually sit on the cash. So the fear always is for me is that, at the, you know, when they're raising the money, they're looking to deploy. 
two, maybe three years. Yeah. If too many of them are sitting on the on the money now that they've raised in 2020 and 2021, the risk is actually where the, if they're not if they can't then deliver the returns, that down the line they're going to find it harder to actually raise the next funds. And I mean, that some of the mm. funds that we've got now, if if you look at are very or need to have exits to raise an, you know, a lot of them yeah. are sitting on paper money. Yeah. The vintages are kind of getting to the stage where they need to have the IPOs or the exits. And obviously valuations coming down, that's gonna, gonna impact them massively. So I'm just worried about the next couple of years in terms of well, We don't have to worry about that because that's coming down in the next couple of years. The 15 billion needs to be spent ben, right now. So exactly. I think it's gonna be like- Exactly. Yeah, and- See, the one certainty that you can count on in ventures, no VCs are giving money back to their LPs. Yeah. They're not gonna be like, oh, I'm so sorry, there are no investable opportunities in this ecosystem, please take this money back yeah. from us. So then the question then comes, where are you going to invest it? Because there was another slide in the Google report that said that Vietnam was gonna to top the growth rate at 30%. Philippines 20% and it's going to be higher than Indonesia at a mere 19%. Well it comes to the point when everybody says is that they, they say Philippines and Vietnam are great places to go but I, I, every VC I know is calling me up saying do you have any good companies to invest in, in those markets? Well, we, we've been investing very actively in the Philippines. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. You're supposed to be investing Mike. in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a transition year. You know? And I yeah. spoke to the guys there and I said, you're, you're telling me that, you know, finally this, I've been saying this a long time, that the regionalization of the region is going to happen. And I feel like it's on the tipping point. And, you know, next year and the year after, you're going to start seeing Series B, Series C coming out of Philippines and Vietnam and Thailand. And it's just going to complement the whole thing round it out. Indonesia is still going to be Indonesia. But this idea that you can, you know, Southeast Asia tech is just Indonesia tech. I mean, the Google report just very specifically says that's not the case, or it won't be the case in the years come. Yeah, just to backtrack a little bit, are you a little bit offended by Michael's statement that every good VC he knows has been calling him and asking him for deals in Philippines and Vietnam and we haven't been calling him. You know so why? I, feel so we're not, I just couldn't call me. You would never, you, you would never call me, buddy. <laughs> you're on my level. Maybe, maybe it's just I call him. I, I said, What's your, where are your companies? Uh, yeah. Damn it. It's oh. just me then. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one well, of he's, he's deep in Vietnam. He, he's invested in quite a lot, you know, over there. Yeah. My boys track him like yeah. a hog. Look at that. We put the Apple, we put the Apple tag in his bag already. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we only do it. We only do a few <laughs> deals. We don't have to do that many. But I think one of the things that I have noticed, especially coming out of Vietnam, is there's more and more companies that we're investing in and we're then seeing actually expand outside Vietnam. That's probably one of the things I'm beginning to see both in the Philippines and in Vietnam, when I first got to Southeast Asia and I was looking at opportunities in Vietnam and the Philippines and Thailand, quite often they were just looking at their home markets. Now I'm beginning to see they're actually looking at the region a lot more. And mm. I think that's what is getting really exciting yeah. for, for me. We've been investing in the Philippines and Vietnam for the last seven years as well. So I think that we're you, you pretty that, right? bullish. That's right. Pretty bullish on those <laughs> markets, especially the Philippines. No, I think I, it's been underestimated and a bit of a laggard market in Southeast Asia so far, but it's catching up I quite quick. I want to say I've always been saying it, and now Google I know you're validates in, you're me. You're in Kumu. That's why, yeah. I'm in Kumu. I mean, got that deal. I, and I always say, despite the fact that we were early in Indonesia, we've pivoted to Philippines and Vietnam, and 
I just feel like this report validates a lot of things that we've been <laughs> saying to people. You know? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not that it's self-praise is no praise here. Hey, I don't want to be the first to pat myself on the back. No, but it's just not. It's nice, you know. The report. It's not like I game the report. They they agree with us. No, it's fair. It's fair. It's fair. You know. But one of the things that was a shocker to us was that last week I opened up my newspaper and Entrepreneur First announced. Big, big in the Business Times of Singapore that they are pulling out of Singapore, citing the fact that they don't think that the deep, deep tech, tech ecosystem is deep enough for Entrepreneur First, which is you know arguably one of the most premier incubators slash deep tech focused investors, has literally said that there is not enough deep tech in Singapore for us to sustain. Michael, you're very close to them. Reasonable or unreasonable? I would I would say totally unreasonable, oh, and I was actually totally unreasonable. Wow. I, I, wow. I was actually uh, kind of shocked and disappointed. And for those that don't know, I, I was the first investor check they ever got for their first fund back in the UK. Wow! And you invested I, to them in the UK. In the side. UK, yeah. and I was actually helped them actually move here in the first place. And I did a lot of the initial introduction. So for me. Because when I moved out here, I saw the opportunities, and I thought they would actually be, you know, having EF here would actually really support and grow the ecosystem. And I've invested, I think, in about five of their portfolio companies that they've built over the years, and some of them are our top performing companies. Yeah. So to actually see that statement, I was disappointed. Yeah. Because I, I totally disagree. I, I think there's a lot of deep tech talent and deep tech opportunities here, but I think. Some of it, it's about the people. Some of it is about the approach they take. Yeah, you know, um, and there's a lot of competition now for what they're doing. When they first moved here, if you look at the early cohorts, I, I think they they were on on the stronger side because yeah. they were the only game in town. Yeah, and I think when the when other people saw they were being successful, others started doing the same. And they didn't really kind of up their game. Well, you know, venture is a power law distribution. If you've got the brand name, you'll continue to attract. And you should just because you're first and you're first mover, you should be able to sustain it. And what you're saying is that they didn't sustain it. I don't think so. I, I, I for, for me personally, I, I, you know, I see a lot of deep tech opportunities that are coming out of NUS Grip, that are coming out of A Star. And I see a lot of talent that's coming out there. Yeah. But I think here, because I've actually told them what my belief is, as I thought, they always focus too much on the tech and not enough on the commercial side. And also that they had, you know, the terms became tougher and tougher for the founders. So, yeah, you know, if you're a smart founder and you kind of saw the terms that they have begun offering by the end to the cohorts, the teams that they were building. So what were the terms? I mean, the terms were, and I think I don't think it's a, a secret, but they were putting in, I think, seventy-five thousand dollars for a ten percent stake pre-close of a one point five million round. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily the seed round; it could have been the Series A. Okay. So um, they were actually getting a very long-dated option that essentially got them a, a large proportion of the company. Exactly. Okay. Vishal, out of market, you're, you're in there. Like, you know, do you see entrepreneurs come to you and go like, oh, hey, you know, I, I like entrepreneur first, but can't stomach the deal that they're putting there. Do you think that was part of the reason why they let competition come in? I don't know. I, I have so many thoughts about this. I mean, I'll start by saying that I was really shocked and 
a little bit upset by the headline, right? And the yeah. quotes that were given in that article, just painting the entire ecosystem with this brush saying there's no talent over here to invest in deep tech, sadly. Yeah. And I think that isn't true because we've seen success. In fact, we've seen success even investing in some EF companies over here like Translestio, among a number of others that have been able to successfully raise later stage rounds. But I think there are few systemic problems. The first is not all entrepreneurs who are going to be building deep tech companies are going to go through the accelerator like EF. If you are, for example, a scientist working at ASTAR or someone spinning out of it or of a research laboratory and you have a good idea of how to commercialize a technology or you have a good plan already and you have the support of the university or the research institutions, you're going to bypass EF entirely. So I'd say most of the deep tech investments that we've done have not gone through a deep tech accelerator like EF. So that's one part of the problem, right? That that in some ways you face adverse selection in the long run because as the methodology of building a deep tech company gets better and better known and more people and more entrepreneurs are emboldened to build companies in this space, there's less of a need for the crutch of an accelerator like EF or incubator like EF that's smashing people together to get it off the ground. So that might be one of the one of the issues. The second one, I think, is really about where the gaps exactly exist in the ecosystem for deep tech, right? Like, so for example, if the model is really to take a business person and take a more science-oriented or engineering-oriented person and bring them together and hope that they can start a company, well, it's not that hard to then replicate and do, right? So you have, for example, I think Antler has a deep tech part of their program as well. As an incubator, is that true? I don't think they have a focus, but you have uh, Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. Yeah, has a, right. Has yeah. So you have the Singapore Deep Tech Alliance. You've got the Singapore MIT Alliance as well that has their own programs to incubate yeah. and facilitate sort of like entrepreneurship in this area. So, you know, it, it sort of like becomes a little bit difficult to have a competitive advantage in the in the longer run in the space. In the space. I think the last thing that I say with this, which is to be fair to them, there's definitely not as much deep tech talent over here than that exists in other ecosystems. So for example, if you're benchmarking against the UK, which also draws in talent from European research institutions and universities, if you're benchmarking against Boston, right, which has, you know, MIT and a bunch of other technical universities where people are coming in building companies and the, along the Kendall Square area, which has a history of just scientifically producing idea to IPO deep tech companies, it's hard to benchmark against those ecosystems but it's not a dead zone. The companies yeah. do exist. We are all investing in them. It's just that they're not all going through. Yeah, I, I think the best program. way to say it's a, it's still an emerging class, but it's Correct. emerging very, very rapidly. Correct. Because I asked around and I said, if you didn't take money from entrepreneur first, are there any other people at the early stage who would actually you know, focus on these things? And I asked a few people in the ecosystem, in the government agencies, I've got a list. MedTech, MedTech Innovator, MedTech Actuator, EVX, ESCO Group. I like the mm, ESCO guys. Yeah. Uh, AgriTech, you have, you know, Tomasic does a lot on the life science, trend lines. On the sustainability side, you have shells here with the startup engine, plug in place, your sustained tech accelerator. In advanced manufacturing, hacks is here, Planet Spark. I mean, I just got all, I literally just said, are there anybody else in it? <laughs> mm. A very furious uh, list appeared on my yeah. WhatsApp would, group, I, you know? Look, I, I, I would slightly disagree yeah. on one part is if you're looking at like pre-seed and seed, a lot of them are not touching that, especially like 
on the government unless there is a VC supporting. So this is pretty much my, my bread and butter. Yeah. And I would just say a lot of the companies I'm seeing, when I talked to them and said, who else are you talking to? They, they're like, people won't even give us a first meeting. The minute yeah. they see what stage mm -hmm. we are. So the opportunity is here. So the op for me, the opportunity is here. But for, for EF, they don't have the, the, you know, if you're building companies, you need people to, to invest in them. Because I, I would challenge it. I, I believe in the model works because if you look at the success that they're achieving, in the UK, and I, I invest in the, the companies yeah. in the UK, they have had huge success. But one of the things that I, I kind of found was counterproductive is they said that they've got a portfolio here of 80 companies hmm. with a value, and this is since they started investing in 2016, hmm. of 1.4 billion. You know, and they have in most of these companies around- You should stay in the ecosystem 10, if you've got a 1 billion portfolio. Yeah. And, and you should, and, and on a lot of those companies, they'll have, they started off at least with a 10% stake in yeah. those businesses. So even if they get diluted, they probably still have at least 5% of that yeah. within the short period of time, especially when it's deep tech, which normally takes longer to actually kind of, before you start yeah. seeing the hockey stick curve on the valuations. Mm -hmm. I actually think that they're doing remarkably well in terms of the performance. So for me, if they just turned out and just, if they just turn around and said, look, we're consolidating yeah. Our, you know, our offices into the major, what we see as the major hubs. I would have been, I would have understood that. But then to say that there's not the talent here, yeah. there's not the opportunity yeah. here. For me, that's where I saw was a bit of a yeah. slap in the face. They should just have said it was a commercial decision. That's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. Uh, we love you guys. I think there's great potential here, but yeah. we are just going to focus here yeah. for them to just kind of make that blanket it, statement. You know, but a couple of other things, right? Num number one, I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately sad that they're leaving. Like it's a sad I thing know. that they're going because when they arrived on the, on the scene with a bang, it really did bring a lot of attention to the deep tech ecosystem. And it goes without saying, I remember we were all there that first demo day yeah. where all the founders were pitching with extremely exaggerated hand <laughs> actions and very slow Thank you, Ian, for the Jesus poses. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus it was so poses, good. It was right. so much fun <laughs> attending Making that fun event, of them. right? Yeah. And, but it was a wonderful thing to have that and to coalesce the entire ecosystem around the opportunity of deep tech. And I think some funds have started off the back of that or at least started deep tech practices off the back of that because more and more attention was drawn towards it. The second thing I'd say is this. There is one part of the talent pool that I think many of our founders have given us feedback on, which is that they have trouble recruiting quality technical talent in the areas that they want to build their companies in. So maybe the, the quality of the founders and the founding team does exist and there's enough people starting companies, but then scaling those companies is an issue yeah. with the right talent. The third is that I also think that it's not just a pre-seed seed gap. I think it's even a series A gap, right, that exists in, in this sort of deep tech market. And I think a part of it is because the way that you underwrite a deep tech company, I think, is a little bit different from the way that you underwrite an internet technology company. The amount of capital that they may need to start to get off the ground, you can't just cut them, you know, like a 75K check and say, off you go developing this, you know, new form of nuclear fission. It doesn't work that way. You need a lot more so capital to get it started. A lot of it moonshot -ish. is moonshot-ish, yeah. moonshot-ish, and you've got to take a bet on it. They require a lot more capital, they require a lot more, and this is important, non-dilutive funding through research grants and being able to tap into that entire ecosystem. And I think some companies do that very, very well, but it's very hard on a normal seed round 
to get them well, to a level of de-risking that I, they need? I, I would say, right, I, I work very closely with A-Star. I sit on a couple of the committees. I think the amount of gap financing, which is what is defined as the financing you give to projects to try and get them closer to the commercialization, feels to me like quite a significant amount. And I think the key thing is to go find those companies. I mean, I, I invest think, in a company with a, quite a fair bit of gap financing, you know, yeah, just but, to get them off the ground. But the problem is, I, I would say two points to what, mm. what you've just said, is the first off, it works fine if you've got 30% Singapore ownership of the company. But if you've got, oh, if you don't have that, you have no access to grant funding in Singapore. So you're actually finding deep tech outside of Singapore. Well, no, if you think of the founders, quite a lot of the founders that EF were bringing yeah, in yeah, were, were not, not Singaporean. So they were not given. So the, they were not okay. having yeah. access to the grants. I'm seeing it from the other side. I see with all the rest of the Singaporeans with triple barrel names, you know, yeah. and then just yeah. a lot and of then, findings. And then the other thing, I 100% <laughs> agree, and everybody knows I don't really do this with Vishal. Talent, <laughs> talent, talent is a big issue in terms for deep tech. And I've said it before, and I'm probably going to get shot being the kind of foreigner on this podcast. Yeah. Getting visas, getting work passes for foreign talent to come here, yeah. is especially it's for startups, is, is way too much of a challenge, yeah. especially with the salary expectations that you have to get yeah. for those for the, for those kind of employees which yeah. got PhDs and everything yeah, yeah, yeah. to get them here yes you can get them in but you have to pay them so so much that as a startup you can't afford to pay them so I'm seeing a lot of companies that I'm investing in here but actually having to build their teams outside of Singapore which I don't always think is the best because yeah. you've got such great facilities here sure. and I think that's something that has to be looked well, at sometimes you know, if you agreed with me uh, thank you for agreeing with me Michael Blakey I know it's a rare, rare thing but if you agreed with me even more, you might have some unicorns, exits, and management fees as well. So no, I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, and, you know, Michael, I think that point is very well noted. And I think the guys in, in, the, in the government are always balancing. And yeah. so it's always tricky, as you would know from your current government situation <laughs> in, the, in the British Why Isles. Why do you have to bring that? Can we just say, my, <laughs> yeah. my, 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 the British government is yeah. absolutely fucked. So can yeah. we just leave it at that? And just like, <laughs> no, yes. but I, I, I have uh, great confidence. Uh, you know, I, I saw, actually, I saw uh, Minister Lawrence uh, speak at the Forbes CEO conference. Mm. Uh, shout out to him. Uh, I certainly thought he did a crazy good job. And there was one moment where we had a reporter say, uh, what about this and what about that? And Singapore being an ally of America. And the gentleman just stuck, went, went straight up and Minister Wong just went, no, we are not allies. And he just, we will act in our interest. And it was just so good. It was just like that one moment where we saw people stand up and go, excuse me. And it was yeah. like, it harks back to, you know, the old guy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Kuan yeah, Yu, yeah, and he goes, yeah, excuse yeah. me. That was just a great <laughs> moment. Uh, you know, it was really nice to see that. And... It was really nice to see the lively banter. I think, you know, the current team is, is very open to this kind of feedback, much more consultative. So you're not going to lose your visa just because you say that. Because I think they're quite aware of I think they're aware of it. I mean, look, it's hard. If you, you look know? at it. But, I don't want his job. But bottom, <laughs> bottom line is what yeah. I look at is there's a reason that I moved here. There's a reason I set up a fund here. Yeah, and so I'm sure like Vishal and yourself is yeah. we see the opportunity here. Yeah. It's not. It's never going to be easy, and I think deep tech in many ways is is tougher. It requires that kind of immigration. It, it requires immigration, it, yeah. and if you look at even if you look at the U.S., a lot. Oh, absolutely. Yes. The, the deep tech has actually come from people around the world immigrants, and bringing yeah. them yeah. immigrants that been brought put together. And I think Singapore has this opportunity because of the education system here, the research system here. Yeah, and there the, is government the, we're, support. We're yeah. currently in the world, the Switzerland of you know piece of like uh, just come over here and do your research right? yeah. 
Well, let, let's hope let's hope that whatever's happening with EF draws more attention to this deep tech ecosystem, even now with this headline, and that more people continue to invest in it and try and understand how to fix it better. Right? I'm sure it would be a wake up call for a number yeah. of people to sort of like dive into the yeah. issues and try and help founders and entrepreneurs and the ecosystem as a whole develop. Uh, yeah. Right? I, I would just say that I think it's a, it's a sign of a very mature ecosystem that we have mm-hmm. wins and and both losses. Yep. You know, yep. got rest in peace JFDI back in the day. Yeah. Now yes. you know, and now EF. Yeah. We, 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 we shed a tear for EF. I think one of the things we should like talk about with our audience is what do we see as deep tech? Because it, it, you talk to different people and they say different things. Do you have a way of... It's so funny, right? It's like that saying, it's like pornography, you know it when you see it. You know, the yeah. difference between porn and art. Like, I think deep tech is... <laughs> many people think about it the same way, where it's like... That's his insight to you. Right, right. You know, it's going to okay. be a little bit different. Yeah, well, I'll give you a good definition. When I, I give see you a good deep definition. tech, I know. I know, deep I know. I know. Dude, that's <laughs> deep tech. <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, what in my definition a deep tech company is, really. And I, I think it comes down to a few things, right? The first is that I think that they're platform businesses, right? They're, you're not building something that is a unique component of one small part of a business. The second is that the barriers to entry for deep tech businesses tend to be technological and engineering, whereas the barriers to entry for most internet companies that we invest in tend to be more market entry, commercial, you know, like how you're actually going to be doing marketing and sales or whether you're first mover in the market developing a certain product. But it's not a technological and engineering barrier to entry. The third point is that there's usually valuable IP associated with the company, right? So the company is building IP that is valuable in and of itself, quite separate from the business. And I think maybe if I were to add one more, I think the businesses tend to be global from day one. So when you're building a deep tech company or a company that has a certain technological or engineering barrier to entry, you are going to be benchmarked against the best businesses developing technology in the world. No one cares if you're the best satellite manufacturer in Southeast Asia, they care about whether you're the best satellite manufacturer globally for a certain component or a certain part that you're developing or something like that. So Vishal, how do you do due diligence on that? How do you validate that the wonderful thing you see in Southeast Asia is actually the best thing you see in the world? So I'm a generalist investor, right? Like all like the both of you, none of us are rocket scientists, but I have invested in a rocket company, Gilmore Space. Shout out to Adam, he's launching a rocket in another yeah. month. <laughs> but what I would say is this, I didn't, in 2015, when deep tech companies and founders started to approach me, I remember saying no to most of them because I didn't understand how to underwrite those deals, right? Give me an internet, yeah. give me a software company, sure, no problem, right? But deep tech companies that were more hardware focused, more gnarly with the technology, I always said no in the early days. And then, you know, I was approached with this opportunity to invest in the space company and I didn't want to say no to this founder. So I asked myself, what's really the barrier to me understanding how to underwrite this company? And I felt that the barrier was this. How do I know and understand that the tech that is being developed, that is the core of this company, actually works? It is better than whatever the status quo is and the founder is the right person to back it. So what I started to do is develop networks of technical experts that can help me at least look into the technical aspects of deep tech deals. So we do it through two ways. The first is, experts that we have in certain fields. And I spent some time actually teaching at MIT in Boston, courses on like entrepreneurial finance and investing in emerging markets so I could have access to the MIT yeah. staff room. That's very smart. So I have <laughs> access That's to the professors smart. over there. So that was the first thing that I did. And it was a lot of fun doing that. But you know, those flights to Boston really weighed on me after a few years. 
The second thing is that we started to just to reference with customers because if you think about it, a lot of the companies when they come to us, they already are running pilot projects with certain customers and those customers are experts in those fields. So you use customer analysis as a proxy for whether the tech works and how it compares and benchmarks to the status quo. There you go. So we started to do it that, those ways, at so, least at the earlier stages. So if you're a deep tech startup right now and you want to pitch to Vishal, make sure you tell somebody in the MIT <laughs> teaching staff room uh, that you're Maybe awesome your sponsor. and uh, make sure that you let uh, Vishal talk to your customers. So uh, what's the rest of the month for you like, Michael? Where are you going to be in the next two or three weeks? I'm not going to actually be traveling. I am, we've got our big portfolio day, so we get all the founders together yes, that's to right. do uh, training and to meet investors. Obviously, you are going to be, be attending. I'll be there. Uh, Vishal is uh, going to be speaking there. I just haven't got around to telling him that <laughs> yet. Uh, so you'll be on at 11 o'clock on the 11th on the 11th. So I'm keeping it wow. on the 11th. Wow. So wow. 11, 11, 11, so thank you very much so for accepting. So I can't forget. You can't this forget. No, no way. No. Look at that. Can mm. I bring a plus one? Of course you can. Okay, here we are in. Yeah. I'm already going. What are you talking about? My favorite early stage uh, angel and deep tech ex uh, investor extraordinaire. extraordinaire. <laughs> Come on. Oh, cool. What are you yeah. going to do, Vishal? Yeah, you know, like I spent the first two weeks after F1 just recovering from it. And finally, like I'm there. I'm just going to spend the next couple of weeks over here. I was supposed to be in Japan this weekend, can that trip. But I'll be flying to the US at the end of the month for our AGM and things like that. And then see yeah. how, uh, how our year progresses after that. You weren't going up Mount Fuji again? I'm stuck here until the end, uh, end of the month because our big AGM is coming up. Can I get Q an invite to the AGM? Actually, that's a good question. I think it, I, and you never have asked. I would like to come. Oh, we would uh, love to have you there. Fantastic. We now yeah, have it on record. record. Yes. It's done. Shane, mm. we'll have to get him over there. That would be great. Actually, the investors would love to see the rest of the uh, unreasonable. It'll be quite fun. Yeah, it's actually It'll quite, be quite cool. fun. And then after that, I'm heading over to the UK. Uh, go see my sister. sister? I come back, uh, do some stuff. Are you going to rescue your sister from the UK? Because obviously, <laughs> <laughs> does she what need help? What are you help? talking about? She's loving it. The pound is, uh, you know, very, very attractive pricing now. So it's a quite good. She gets uh, paid globally, so it's no problem. Oh, right. okay. amazing. Yeah, okay. Cost structure. Yeah. And then that's it. That's the, I mean, I can't believe it. That's the end of the year. Well, we're done. I hope we get to record a couple of more episodes before the year ends. Yeah, let's before try and hang out. I'm just gentlemen. waiting to hear... Uh, Ian's predictions for next year. Oh, I can't wait. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, no, I'm not. I'll, next I'll, I'll go do some research. The next episode. All right. So, so you, if you want to hear Ian's ask, inaccurate uh, predictions, yeah. after he's in, asked and consulted <laughs> the wisest <laughs> people he knows, <laughs> if you want to hear those predictions, join us next time on the Unreasonable Podcast.